0: Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me, as always, is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. In this episode, and where we're going, we don't need numbers, you ask some well-composed and thoughtful questions about Rome, I butcher your names in the process of reading them out, and Rhiannon provides the answers. So, question one comes from Owen O'Donnell, who's in Glasgow. Why did the Romans not invade Ireland, and what did the Irish and Romans know about each other?
1: The Romans did know about Ireland, and they thought they knew things about the Irish, or the people who lived in what we call Ireland now. They called it Hibernia. They didn't invade Ireland probably because it was a step too far. The invasion of Britain and also conquests on right on the other side of empire in the, the Middle East kind of stretched the empire really far. What the Romans thought they knew about the Irish, the earliest text I know comes from Strabo, who's a Greek geographer who's living around the time of Augustus and Tiberius. Remember, this is before the Romans have invaded Britain even. He says that Britain's not really worth invading. Julius Caesar went there, but there's nothing really there, which is often seen as a way of excusing why Caesar didn't invade. And indeed, Augustus didn't invade after that. And he says there's another island out beyond Britannia. And it's a place of kind of monstrous beings He says that they marry their mothers and they eat other humans. So they're man eaters and they commit incest. So it's clearly a case, you know, Strabo didn't know and he hadn't been there or talked to anyone who had been there. But this is so far beyond the Roman imagination that that's the place where these strange goings on happen. So it's, it's pretty fair to say the Romans didn't know much about what was going on in Ireland. They don't seem to have shown much intention or aspiration to go beyond Britannia. Circumnavigating Britain was sort of, you know, you had gone around the edge of the world then. Uh, so I guess in some ways the Irish got lucky in that they were just a bit too far for the Romans to uh, think about going to. Although I have heard it said by an Irish person that in a way the Irish were unlucky because that meant they kind of lost out on the history and the ruins that are left there and a whole kind of aspect of the tourist industry that (laughs) relies on that in Britain.
0: I found one reference uh, and that was Agricola kind of thought about going over there but decided basically that it wasn't worth the trouble. Yeah. So it, it's considered in his biography that Tacitus wrote. It's at least mused about, and that was the extent of it.
1: And and Tacitus, as we've we've talked about this, he's painting Agricola as the kind of man who will continue building empire. But you can see that this is a common theme. Mm. If they don't invade somewhere where it might be vaguely in there in the mind to go invade, then the idea is there's nothing there worth having. So it's an empire that's there for resources.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, next question that we've got here is uh, from M.A. Bailey. What happened to someone who was banished? Cicero, Augustus's daughter, Julia, Ovid, etc. It's literally an etc. A lot of people got banished. How did they live... Were they still able to afford luxuries of the upper class given their status in Roman society, etc.? What was banishment like?
1: Well, this is interesting. There are different degrees of banishment. Uh, And by the way, it's not just Augustus' daughter, Julia. It's also his granddaughter, Julia. Mm. So he had a lot of banishing going on because he was the one responsible for Ovid too. Uh, There are different ways of being banished and you might lose your property or a certain proportion of it, which is what should have happened to both the Julias because they were convicted of adultery. And you get banished to an island. That's so you can't catch up with your lover who gets banished to a different island by law. And both the Julias had pretty wretched lives in banishment, as as did Agrippa Posthumus. You know, they kind of wasted away in banishment and were perhaps deliberately starved or finished off so they would have lived very very meager lives they're not living the life of a roman aristocrat they're really being punished mm. but there was a different form of banishment uh, an exile that just meant that you couldn't be given you couldn't be given fire or earth in other words, you, you couldn't be welcomed into somebody's house within Rome or perhaps within a certain distance from Rome. That's what it usually was. And that's what happened to Cicero. He was exiled, but he wasn't exiled to a specific place. And he technically didn't lose his property, although his house was invaded, was taken over by the state officially while he was away by a man called Clodius who burned it to the ground and built a temple of liberty there. So he did lose some of his property in effect. Uh, But he basically had to go a certain distance from Rome. He went off to the west coast of Greece where he lived with a friend of his in extreme luxury mm. and complained about it a lot. And he was only there for just over a year. But, you know, he wasn't at the heart of Rome. He couldn't be part of politics. And he did get to come back. Uh, he just needed someone to speak up for him back in Rome. So that's a kind of exile that's not permanent. Whereas what happened to people like Ovid, you know, Ovid never came back to Rome. Mm. and He was just wasting away. He'd been told to go to a specific place. It wasn't an island, but still it was a place that wasn't particularly auspicious for him. And basically it's been cut off from Roman society and from the city itself.
0: Was it an an enforced kind of thing or was it up to you to keep yourself banished?
1: It was enforced in terms of, for example, if Cicero had gone to a friend's house that wasn't far enough away, Mm. then that person was laying themselves open to also being convicted and being punished. So it's enforced in that you have to get yourself away, but if anyone knows you're within the distance you're not meant to be within then you will be arrested.
0: Okay. Yeah. So
1: it's a, it's a kind of double whammy of you've got to get yourself there, but you really have to do it. Whereas if you're taken off to an island like the Julia's, they would have been carted off.
0: Next question is from Greg Crimean in Washington, D.C., USA. Uh, shout out to Washington, D.C. Uh, Greg also suggested the sexuality podcast that we did recently, okay. So which was quite a good one. Thanks, Greg. Uh, he wants to know, um, I always wondered says Greg, how the Romans counted their years. Obviously, they didn't say it's now 52 BCE because, well, obvious reasons. They didn't know that Christ was going to be born in 52 years' time. What year did they call it, and how did they know what year things happened, especially in the BCE era?
1: Well, you're quite right, and it's something I have to explain to students, that that's not the way the Romans numbered their years, neither the BCE nor the CE, since the birth of Christ was not something that figured for them.
0: Can I give a guess? Because I think I remember this from Suetonius. He dated things like, this happened in the year that Caligula died. This happened in the third year of Augustus' reign.
1: You can do it in that way. It is in terms of events. But the standard way of doing it is by who is consul that year. All right, and there are two consuls during the Republic. Obviously, this doesn't work so well during the imperial period. You still have consuls, but they change a lot more frequently. Mm. Um, So they do then tend to say in... Well, they might say in the fifth consulship of Augustus, because the emperor gets to be consul lots of times too. But they might say in the 10th year of his reign. But in the Republic, so largely the BC period, they will say in the consulship of Cicero and Marcus Antonius.
0: Would they have been consul for a year together? Yes. By the way that we measure years? Yes. Okay. For a solar
1: year, but then, Mm. of course, the calendar gets out of whack. Mm. We won't get into all of that right now because it's very complicated. But yes, they're consul for a year, so that dates the year, as long as you have consular records. And we do for a lot of it. There's been a lot of meticulous work done because we actually have the carved fasti, they're called, the calendar which have the Republican consuls on them. There are bits missing, unfortunately, but Mm. we can basically work out what year is being talked about. The other way of doing it, which backs that up and is sometimes used, for example, Livy uses it in his history, is to say what year it is in relation to the foundation of the city. So they're actually counting forwards. They think of the city as being founded in 753 BCE, in our terminology, And they count inclusively, so 753 is year one, Mm. and then 752 is year two, 63 BCE when Cicero was consul. You have to subtract 63 from 753, but then you have to take into account that it's inclusive counting.
0: Time started when Rome was founded. As far as we're concerned, that's what matters.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. it, and of course, this is what regimes sometimes do. Like Napoleon tried to say, we're going to start from year one of the revolution. It only works if you, continue, if you maintain your power. It didn't work for Napoleon because he was deposed. But it worked for the Romans all the time that they had a powerful empire because they were in control of time.
0: Yes, yep. Thanks very much, Greg, for that question. Next question we'll go is from Brian Kondraki from Arizona in the United States. Shout out to Arizona. Up until Hadrian, it appears that all emperors were clean shaven. Why did emperors all of a sudden begin to grow beards? Now, Rhiannon, back in the 80s, I owned a pair of happy pants. I shouldn't admit that. You don't know what happy pants I don't. are, do you? <laughs> Let's just say they were bright blue and yellow and they were very happy. So beards, just a a fashion kind of thing that came along around the reign of Hadrian?
1: In a way, yes. The Romans hadn't always been clean shaven, we think, in that, say, statues of Brutus, that is not the Brutus who assassinated Caesar, but his probable ancestor, the Brutus, who was responsible for founding the Republic in the 6th century. Statues of him show him with a beard. Mm. So the Romans at least thought that beards were common then, and they probably were through the mid-Republic. Clean-shaven seems to be the later Republic. And then you're quite right, the early emperors are always shown clean-shaven. Although Nero has a little bit of facial hair going on, just a touch. Yeah, but that's Nero. Sideboards, maybe. The reason we think that under Hadrian uh, it became popular again is that the emperor has a beard and he is somebody who's very interested in Greek culture, pro-Hellenic. He's a Hellenophile. He's very interested in Greek philosophy and Greek philosophers were traditionally shown with beards that they could presumably stroke. He's modeling himself on statues of Greek philosophers or the portraits of Greek philosophers, that Mm. kind of ideal. And that becomes the fashion the hair is also, if you look at statues of Hadrian and emperors just beyond him, their hair is getting, it takes an expert sculptor to be able to put those little curls and ringlets in their hair because it's getting quite thick and curly and masked.
0: It's uh, it's the Roman version of happy pants. Yeah. <laughs> All right. so.
1: <laughs> but it is connected to a much, much longer tradition of philosophers having that appearance. So the philosopher look was in, if yes. you
0: like. Yes, yes thanks very much to Brian for that question. Next one I've got here is from Lezek from Warsaw in Poland, who, congratulations on your great trip to Pompeii, Leszek. but in amongst there he's asked about how do people pay for tickets when they go to the games? Uh, did they buy them for individual shows? Were they co-financed out of the general taxes? So you know, provided by the rulers at that point. Was it expensive? Could everyone go? Tell us about ticketing. How mm. would that kind of work for games?
1: They didn't have to buy tickets at all. The theatre was free to go to and it was financed by politicians. Yeah. So it's going out as a candidate and electioneering is I can put on a show for you. So either I can put on a show at the games for you or I can put a show on in the theatre for you. So it's often paid for by the city praetor. It might be somebody who's standing for election. It might be someone who's just trying to show their power and maintain popularity. And we have, for example, we've talked before about Petronius, who was a writer under Nero. In his novel, The Satyricon, he has various characters saying, oh, you know, so-and-so put a show on. It wasn't that good. I'm not voting for him. Yeah, And yeah. that's in the imperial period. So it still matters. It's kind of a display of wealth and power And it means this is what you can do for the people. Can you put on a splendid show? Can you buy the best actors? Can you commission the best playwright? Can you get some great stage scenery in? And can you please the people? Mm. So it's very much a parallel to what happened in the arena. And it's a way of making sure that you maintain your own positions. It's not philanthropic at all, as it might appear. It's something that you can help to build your own power.
0: So the next question that we've got here is from Craig Mahini in Chino, CA, California? California. California, California. Shout out to California. When a standard was lost in battle, did the Roman bureaucrats ever just make new ones and pretend that the loss never happened, or did they instead go to the trouble of upsetting the public and trying to get the standard back? So what happens with it when a standard is lost in battle? First, uh, just briefly, what is a standard and why is it significant? What happens when it's lost?
1: A standard is the symbol of a Roman legion and it's a stick with what we would think of as a kind of flag-like apparatus at the top of it, often fringed, and an eagle at the very top, the eagle being the symbol of Rome and also the symbol of Jupiter. And it'll have some marking on it that says which legion it's associated with. It's kind of the symbol of the honour of that legion that they go into battle and they bring the standard back and they can march it in the triumph if there's a triumph, which is the upshot of a particular campaign. And so if you lose it, it's a terrible, hideous shame for your commander and your legion, and, you know, suicides would sometimes follow. So, no, you didn't just pretend. You didn't just make another standard. That would be my response, actually. This is a way of covering up. I'll just make another one. But, no, they couldn't do that. They had to admit to it if they were prepared to go back at all to Rome or they might have been killed in the battle that's how they lost it it's akin to running away losing your standard you can't overestimate the amount of shame that's associated with it and you know we know of battles like for example crassus in the late republic lost 3 legions 3 standards to the parthians and died there and this shame from 53 BC stayed with the Romans for decades until eventually Augustus got the standards back. Which uh, there's a statue of Augustus wearing a breastplate that actually shows the return of the standards on it. There's wow,
0: a, is that big a kind of, deal? There's
1: a barbarian giving them back to a man we think is Tiberius, a Roman soldier. He kind of portrayed this as a great victory. He had got the standards returned as if it was a victory in battle. In fact, he probably did it by diplomacy in 20 BCE. But if you lost the standard, then it was something that stayed with the Romans. Mm -hmm. They should try and get it back, which is kind of the basis for a much later Episode, which is sort of fictionalized into Roman history, which is the Eagle of the Ninth story that some listeners might know about. The Ninth Legion seems to have disappeared sometime in the Hadrianic period, so in the early mid second century CE. And there are various theories about where they might have been, and one of them is in Scotland. We're not absolutely sure they were in Scotland. But if they were there, they just seemed to disappear into the mist, which gave rise to the Rosemary Sutcliffe novel. It's a novel for young young adults, which is about what happened, how the eagle got lost and how uh, the kind of attempt to re-find it, Mm. which was also the basis for two recent films about that. One of them called The Eagle. You can see how long the resonance is for how important the eagle is to the Romans. And that kind of makes sense because they do see it as, as something that represents them and their military status and their honor.
0: Okay. So thanks to Craig Mahinney from Chino in California for that question. Shout out to California. Next question is from Matt Posner in New York. Matt's question boils down to how trustworthy are Caesar's commentaries, the ones that he wrote about his Gallic wars and the ones that were written about him, and how much of them are propaganda?
1: Ooh, it's a tough one, isn't it? How much do you trust Caesar? Well, I love reading Caesar, and I'd like to trust him implicitly. There are various reasons, of course, why we shouldn't. Of course he's going to make himself look good in this, so anyone who's read it will notice that the commander, Caesar, The general always turns up in the nick of time. He's like the cavalry. The troops are often down. The mistakes are all made by his subordinates, the people he leaves in charge. If he does leave people in charge, things often go wrong. So it kind of looks like he's taking the credit and none of the blame. On the other hand, he was a very charismatic commander by all accounts. One reason we might trust a lot of what he says is that he's writing them and publishing them well, at the very least, within eight years of the events happening. Some people think year by year, some people think at the end of the whole campaign. And that means that there are people who were there who are still around. Mm. And there are people who are there who are writing back to Rome. And one of those is Cicero's brother, Quintus Cicero, who was one of Caesar's subcommanders. So there's a limit to how much he can invent and exaggerate. And that's a reason for actually trusting it a lot more than you might expect for something that is written to self-aggrandize and propagandize and, and make him look good. Mm. I think he probably frames it in a particular way. He's a very good writer. You might ask, for example, there was a mention in that question that one other person wrote one of the commentaries. The book eight of the Gallic Wars is written by Hurtius, not by Caesar. I think the reason for that is book seven ends with the Vercingetorix campaign. And that's a big, epic moment. So I think there's a certain kind of almost poetic shaping to it. It's a good way to end it. It's not actually the way the war ends because he's there for another two years. So there's some poetic liberties, I would say.
0: Our final question is from Patricia Gonzalez from Vancouver in Canada. How successful do you think Caesar would have been if he hadn't been murdered? Well,
1: how long is a piece of string? Yeah,
0: I know. It's a bit of one of those, you know, if if Hitler had remained a, an artist kind of questions.
1: <laughs> um, would somebody else have taken over instead? Yeah. I mean, in a way, you could argue perhaps he would have become Augustus. The logical conclusion to the kind of power that Caesar was building is that he would become an emperor, which is what... Augustus does become. It's just that Augustus, you could argue again, learns of the mistakes that Caesar made, like forgiving people, and doesn't make those mistakes. Therefore, there aren't as many people to stab him in the back and the front and everywhere else. I think there's very little doubt that he would have continued to be dictator. He had declared himself permanent dictator, that he would have held absolute sway over Rome, that he was very good at knowing how to please the people. He would have put on performances in the theatre and in the arena. I think he would have been a successful leader by all of the tokens by which we might count someone successful if he had managed to placate that section of the Senate that really wasn't willing to lose the kind of power that he was absorbing. But I bet there are, you know, 50 Caesar scholars out there who might have other things in mind because we just don't know.
0: That's Dr Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. Please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. Somehow, through the magic of Apple, ratings and reviews equal higher rankings. So please help us spread the word. You can like the Emperors of Rome on our Facebook page. And you can also follow myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, And I'm at NightlightGuy. Until the next episode of Emperors of Rome, I'm Matt Smith. You've
1: been fantastic.